uh, this will all make sense in a minute. So, what I want to do this morning is a little uh, different, kind of maybe dangerous. Um, not like discharge live ammunition dangerous. Um, that's not going to happen. But what I want to do today is take you through a progression that God took me through um, just very recently at the end of our time at the camp. And the reason it's dangerous is because I don't want you guys to think this is normal um, for me. Uh, I, what God took me through was a couple of passages of Scripture. And so instead of this morning really uh, going to God's Word and chewing on it and trying to devour it and draw out of it, I'm going to take you through and kind of touch on a couple different passages. And so I don't want to communicate to you that this is what we should be doing all the time as believers. Uh, um, this, this process God took me through developed an analogy that I, in my mind, that's what I'm, why I'm dressed like this. So we as believers don't need to be spending all of our time unpacking analogies. We should be unpacking God's Word. However, this morning I hope what I'm about to walk you through will be helpful. So would you please pray with me? Our great Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we need your help. Uh, and I especially uh, need your help uh, to rightly and correctly and clearly uh, speak what I'm about to share. Um, and Lord, I do ask that if I speak in a way that's confusing, uh, that you would grant clarity. And if I speak in a way that's an error, uh, you would grant forgetfulness. And Lord, please may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For the sake of your son and his great name, amen. So after about uh, 14 years of ministry, I was, some things uh, became real to me. And I realized a few things. And it's very hard to talk with headphones on. So I just want you to know that. Um, I was exposed about some things in my own heart. And I, like I said, I went through this kind of personal progression. And it kind of happened, it started in one evening. And the majority of it took place in an evening. But then over the course of the next couple of days, I want to share with you what happened to me. Because uh, in ministry, you use the Bible every day. Um, and it just kind of happened that, that there's certain passages of Scripture that just seem to come out often, almost daily. They're used um, almost all the time. It seems like in every church gathering, they were just used a lot. And so I found myself becoming all too familiar with these passages of Scripture and not really feeling the weight of them anymore. Um, some of these passages, I would say, were overly used. I don't know if you can overuse God's Word, but they were misused, maybe is a better word. Um, definitely the one in particular was abused. I'm um, just flat used to almost um, hurt people. It just was ugly. And so I found in my heart that I was becoming hard toward these passages of Scripture. Even in my own personal time, as I would read them, I didn't like reading them, which is terrible. But that's what I found. And, and the other thing that I found was um, what I'm about to share with you here. Because God took me in a very kind way one evening, walked me through a process um, I was really late one night, and late for me is like nine. So nine o'clock one night, I was uh, going through some scriptures for whatever reason, and I came across James 1.22, which is probably uh, the most abused passage in my experience. This is just was used in a very wrong way often, and so I was kind of hard to it. And I just happened to read the verse, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And for the first time in a long time, I don't know why it struck me, that phrase, and so deceive yourselves. And I sat there on the couch, all my kids were in bed, and I'm just by myself, and I was tormented. The more I thought about this, it just bothered me. I'm deceived. 
I've been in ministry for 14 years. There's a natural expectation that people have of you. When you look at your pastors, there's a, an expectation, even if you don't want to, you just look at them differently, right? We all kind of do that in some sense. It's not bad, it's just what it is. And so we look at them. People looked at me differently. They had an expectation because I was in full-time ministry. Um, some people, this is scary, considered me mature. I could answer most any question when it came to the scriptures about God and his doctrine and those kind of things. People would come to me for advice. But to be honest, there's something that was bothering me. There there was a a hindrance in my oneness with my Savior, in my oneness with my wife and my family. There was something there and I, I couldn't stick my finger on it. And I was exhausted. Now, that took me to this analogy, right, that I'm dressed up like. If I told you right now today that I was a military operator, would you believe me? Probably, right? It's fairly believable. Um, that if I told you that I'm capable of running my weapon system to its full ballistic capacity, you'd probably believe me. Right now it's a bit out of place, it's way out of place, but it's a little out of place, but you probably believe me because of how I'm presenting myself. But let's just happen to say that I was at a uh, a shooting facility, a training facility that trained people on how to use firearms, and I was dressed like this. Um, I recently, written recently, a couple of years ago, I attended a, a class. There's a, there's a place that I go for a lot of firearms training, and uh, several years ago I was at a four-day basic rifle course. It is a basic entry-level course. Now, you need this course and the skills, to pass the skills test at the end in order to take the more advanced classes, which is what I was interested in, and that's why I was at this basic entry-level course. And I will tell you that as I'm there, if I was to wear this, I would still be out of place. <laughs> this is a, ba- like, literally the class starts with, this is the barrel, this is the trigger. I mean, that's how basic it is. Um, so if I was to wear this get-up, it would be obvious to everyone there that I'm a little more impressed with myself than I ought to be. The funny thing is, is there's actually guys that show up like this. Like there was about half a dozen to a dozen guys dressed like this at a basic entry-level course. They get all geared up, and what's funny to me, at least um, at the time, was they look silly, everybody knows they're silly, and they're the only ones that have no idea. Uh, what's ironic is also is that the guys that get all kitted up like this usually aren't good shooters. They're definitely not the best shooters in the class. When we start sending rounds downrange at the targets, it's pretty obvious they spend most of their time shopping and very little time shooting. Uh, there's nothing on the target. If I were to show up like this my first time at the course, I, I might look the part, right? I, I might know the right words to say. I have the right terminology, the nomenclature. I might even sound a little bit convincing. But once we start actually having to shoot and perform, it becomes pretty obvious to the other classmates and especially to the instructors that I really don't have what I portray that I have. But to the majority of people, if I was just to tell the majority of people that that if you see me dressed like this and you talk with me for a bit, you would be fully convinced that I'm an accomplished weapons expert. Uh, I'm capable of running my my firearm with tremendous speed and accuracy. I... I, uh, present this, I know the right wording, I've watched hundreds of YouTube videos, uh, this would, you would be convinced that this is who I really am. Now, at camp, one of the things we had was a, a shooting facility, a large shooting range, and I oversaw and managed that shooting facility, and so I dealt with a lot of businesses in the shooting industry. 
Um, and because our, our country's been at war for the last several years, the shooting industry is heavily influenced by military and tactical gear, and they give me lots of promotional items, which is what you see here. Uh, now, I also end up, because I'm actually a shooter and I go to competitions and stuff like that, um, I wear a lot of clothing associated with the shooting industry. Right? Um, cargo pants from time to time. I wear military boots a lot just because I like them. They're comfortable. It is often that I get mistaken for being a soldier just in my casual dress. Uh, my wife and I were uh, flying to Costa Rica with uh, the Arrowhead students, and we were in the Salt Lake City Airport, and I went through TSA, and uh, <clears throat> I went through, and she was behind me with some other students, so I went through and was waiting for them, and they all come up kind of laughing. At, and they said, the TSA guys all thought, they were, they were talking, they, they all thought you were special forces, which is pretty cool, but uh, I'm not. Uh, so then we go from there, and um, we walk over to our gate, and I sit down at the gate, and I'm just literally sitting there, t-shirt, jeans, and I think these boots on, that, that, that's it. And my wife goes to the bathroom, and she comes back, and she's like, okay, you might need to change something. I'm like, change, what do you mean? She's like, that lady right there literally just asked me, is your man the one that shot bin Laden? Okay. <laughs> now, that's kind of cool, but no. Um, I'm not a soldier. And what struck me as I thought about that event for a while is I can be recognized for something I'm not because of the way I look, because of the way I present myself. I'm not a soldier. I'm a civilian. That's not bad. But if I'm a civilian showing up at a four-day four practical rifle course dressed like this, and I'm just a civilian, I don't even do this for a living, why am I dressed like this? Why would I do this at the course? Okay, give me just a second, please. I told the guys last night, even though I uh, was just taking off gear, it's weird undressing in front of you. <laughs> okay, how about now? A little different, a little kind of toned down a little bit, right? Um, outside of being a little weird here, if I was at that same shooting facility, would it be a little more appropriate? Possibly. Um, a while back, I attended an advanced tactical handgun course. You can't get in this course unless you've passed a series of skills tests and a bunch of other classes. Um, and you have to be a good shooter to get in this course. And in that setting, I performed well. And this is what I wore. It's appropriate for the class. It wasn't out of line. I actually like these pants just because of where the cargo pockets are. Um, I attended that class. I, I'm halfway decent at shooting. I, I know the terminology. I, I know what a controlled pair is. I know what isometric tension is. I know that this... It's called a magazine. That's what you put up in the pistol, right? Not a clip. Just heads up. Um, in that setting, I fit in. That was an appropriate setting to dress like this. And if you want to expose yourself at a shooting range as an absolute novice, you call this a clip, not a magazine. Several years ago, 
uh, when I first started taking training, me and uh, several other guys went down, and it was my first time getting into the pistol shooting. I had been a <clears throat> fairly accomplished shotgun shooter, but not, um, didn't, didn't do much with pistols. And so I went into the shooting range as a novice, and I didn't know the nomenclature, and I found out that if you call this uh, magazine a clip, you get picked on them pretty quick. Like you, you, your spotlight's on you right away. Now, imagine if I showed up to that course my very first time, basic entry-level course, dressed like I was just a second ago, and I didn't even know what to call this. It would come out pretty quickly. It would be fairly evident that I'm pretty confident I was convincing, and it would be, be pretty obvious to everyone that I was presenting myself as something that I'm not. Does this mean I'm not a shooter? No. But if I showed up dressed like that, I'd just look silly. I'm pretty impressed with an illusion of myself. Um, you might even call me deceived. And honestly, as I sat that one night and read that passage, I realized this is me. This is us. I have on all this gear. I'm really convinced that I'm as real as I look. And just like me being far too impressed with myself at the shooting range, overdressed, some of us, myself included, are far more impressed with an illusion of ourselves than who we really are. The funny thing is at the shooting range, that um, those guys that are all dressed like that, when it starts, the time to come to start shooting, and we start putting rounds down range, and they're pretty exposed that they're not a good shot, um, they just keep playing the game. It's obvious to most of the students, it's definitely obvious to the instructors, that they're far too impressed with themselves. In that setting, it's somewhat humorous. In this setting, it's not funny. In fact, it's sad, even frightening. Um, and I sat there, and the question that came to mind was, how do you know? How do you know if this is you? How do I know if I'm the one that's deceived? Now, if you're sitting there, hearing me describe somebody who's overly impressed with themselves, and you're thinking of somebody else, <laughs> you're it. That's, that's the, the first way. And so, for me, as I sit there, like when, I, when this was coming to mind, there were several other people that came to mind. No, 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 you're it. <laughs> so God kind of walked me through this progression. I want to walk you through what he did uh, the, that, me, uh, that night. Um, it is all too common. In fact, it's a reality for all of us, that we are all overdressed. When it, and when we come to the realization, when God in his kindness kind of exposes to us that we're overdressed, we feel foolish. At least I do. Um, we don't want others to think that we're foolish. We don't want others to think we're fake. So even though we're exposed, God in his kindness showed us that we're a little bit overdressed, we just keep playing the game we just keep overdressing, hoping that by overdressing and never admitting that others will just keep believing the bluff. And I think, at least for me, this builds anxiety and a fear, and it just, it just weighs on it, it just wears on us. What I found for me is that my deception, because of the way I functioned in life, putting up this front, whatever you want to call it, I hurt the ones that I care about. I think we're all kind of naturally resistant to this. We don't want to admit that we're 
putting up this front that we're overdressed. Because honestly, it's flat embarrassing. I literally had a moment two days ago where this got exposed once again. It is horrible. It's humbling. I don't like it. We're nat- that's why we're naturally resistant to this. Um, but what God kind of took me through is, he, you, this doesn't mean you're not a shooter. This doesn't mean you're not a believer. You just might be a shooter who's way overdressed, a novice thinking themselves advanced. You're barely able to perform entry-level standards, and you're all kitted up like a military combat operator. I think all of us, myself mostly, attempt to put on a more impressive front than what we really are. So I, I, I found myself asking a couple questions. And uh, I'm going to just run through the questions. You don't need to write them down, and then I'll summarize them real quick. These are questions I asked myself, so I'm going to ask them of you. Do you have any affection for God? Or do you know just how to speak in religious lingo? Do you have any affection at all for God? Or do you just come to church and say the right words? Does your heart really long to know God? Or do you just do good things and therefore think yourself good? Do you really want to know him? The, there's a, in, in Christian circles, it doesn't matter where you go, there's, a, there's two unwritten lists. And, and they're never written down, but everybody knows what's on them. And there's a list of good things that you have to kind of do, and, and so we do most of them. And there's a list of bad things that you shouldn't do as a Christian, and we don't do most of those. And so we think we're good, but... Do you really want to know him? Does your heart long to know and be with your Savior? Or are you just in this so that God will give you a good life? In fact, some of us have even got to the point where I've been good, I've done the right things, God owes me. And this tormented me because at the root of that question, all those questions are two, two parts. And essentially what I'm saying is, do you want God Or do you want to just get stuff from him? And this made me sick to my stomach because if I answered honestly, I knew which way that was going to come out. Some of us in this room, primarily myself, are pretty impressed with ourselves. And after 14 years of being in ministry, I had to admit I was far too impressed with myself. When others aren't impressed with ourselves as we think they should be, right? Because we're impressive, all of us, right? We're, we're something to be reckoned with. And so when others aren't impressed with us, we don't respond real well. At least I don't. And that in itself is the essence of pride, a proud heart. Now, I'm sure you guys have heard over the years uh, the definition of pride Pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And there's a, there's a part of that where it's correct. That's not complete. Rather, I think pride is, it shows itself that uh, um, I think I'm better. Anything I have or anything I am is better. So I don't just have a nice truck, good truck. My truck is better than yours. I don't just have a nice house, good job, whatever. My job is better than yours. Those are some of the, the material things. But where it really shows itself is in our uh, inward intellect. I don't just have a perspective, and you have a perspective. My perspective is better than your perspective. I don't just have the ability to, to reason and think out a problem and solve it. I can do that better than you can. When we have to make decisions on our family and what to do or a business or a church, it's not just that my decision and my thought process are good. They're better than yours. And that is 
pride, and I found myself that being true. The verse does not say, do not be hearers of the word and so deceive your friends. It does not say, and so deceive your family, master's men, your small group at church, the pastoral staff. It says you deceive yourselves. And if I'm reading it, I deceive myself. The very fiber of sin is deception. What it's made of, its constitution is deception. So, if you and I have sin in our lives in any way, we're deceived. Because sin by nature is deception. So I am the one that's thief. And the funny, the sad part is, hard part is, is I'm the only one that can't see it because I'm the one that's deceived. And now it's easy for us to put all of this, a lot of this on Satan. Don't put this on Satan. You and I can sin just fine without Satan. So where do I start? I found myself on this couch admitting that I'm deceived. I'm walking in sin. I'm a proud, hard-hearted man after all these years of ministry. Where do I start? Because I'm the one that's deceived. I'm walking with this weight in my life, this anxiety. There's brokenness in my home. I'm struggling with my walk with the Lord, and I don't even know it. I'm deceived. So God kind of took me through a progression, and I want to take you through that quickly. The ironic part of this progression is that he used all those passages of Scripture that I had grown hard to, the very common passages. And so I ended up first in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which is up on the screen there. Um, This is considered the love chapter. You guys are probably very familiar with it. In Christianity, love is considered the supreme doctrine. Um, You can't have an unloving Christian. That's an oxymoron. If you're a Christian, this is what we should be showing. This is what should be functioning in our lives. The longer you are a believer, the more mature you are as a believer, the more profound each of these attributes should be in our lives. Um, This definition for me had become pretty familiar. And then when I would read it, because it was so common and so familiar, I would almost, literally almost skip over it. So about a day or two later, I said, if I'm really deceived, like I admitted, this, this is re- I really am deceived. I am far too impressed with myself than I ought to be. If I compared my life to this, what, is it, what does it do? So I said, I'm going to read it. And I started reading, love is patient, love is kind, and, and I stopped. And I sat there sick to my stomach. I thought, I don't think people know me as kind. I have to really honestly look at my life and those that I interact with, I don't think they would describe me as a kind person. In fact, the word that would probably come up more often than not would be abrasive, hard-headed. A little bit later, right after being in verse 5, it says, or rude. And what tormented me in that moment was, I'm rude. And if love is not rude, when I am rude, what I am essentially saying is, I don't love you. Which is exactly opposite of what I'm supposed to be. God then brought to memory a phrase in Philippians 2, in humility, 
consider others better. Well, he had just showed me that I consider myself better. So I finally got to this point, just the weight of my sin and the grossness of my sin was just pressing on me. And I finally asked myself, what do I do? I profess to be a believer. I profess to be a Christian. I know the gospel, the transforming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How does this work in my life? And I was reminded of another phrase in 1 Corinthians 15. And just this little phrase. Christ died for our sins. In those five words, you can almost find the fullness of the gospel. Christ died. And he had some, somebody had to die. He died for me, for my sins. That is supposed to be me on the cross. That is supposed to be me being tormented and then hung on the cross to die. That's supposed to be me. And after the cross... God is right and good and just to send me to a hell of eternal torment. That's supposed to be me. And what I found in that moment is that I don't call sin, sin. I like to justify it. We all do this, right? When my unkindness shows itself, when my rudeness comes out and people point it out to me, I justify it. Well, you know, I, I understand why you felt that way. What I was trying to do was this. I didn't really mean to say it that way. But I understand why you felt that way, and I'm sorry you were offended. I mean, that, that makes no sense. But, right? We justify it. Or, or we'll say, well, you were so mean to me, I had to respond in that way. I had to sin. At least that's what I find. And I don't call sin, sin. And when you and I give our story, our testimonies, we explain our life, we usually never say, I sinned. We say, I made a mistake. I screwed up. I didn't as good as I could have, you know, right? We say, we say those kind of things. Instead of saying, I, I sinned. When I'm unkind, that means I'm selfish. And that's a sin. When I'm rude, that means I'm saying, I don't love you. And that's a sin. And I like to think it's not a big deal, and you like to think it's not a big deal, but don't tell Jesus it's not a big deal. He died because of it. So as I started refreshing my mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first part I had to come to was my sin. And then thinking through, Jesus Christ not only died the death, I should have died. We kind of get that part. He also lived the life I should have lived. My sins were placed on him. And when my sins were placed on him, he didn't become sinful and start sinning. He was treated as if he was sinful. And then therefore his righteousness, his perfect life was placed on me. I didn't become righteous, but now I'm treated as if I was righteous. There's a phrase that uh, Tim Keller said once that was very helpful. He says, when God looks at you, he does not love you the way you are. He loves you the way Jesus is. How does this happen? I know the answer, but I had to ask myself, how does this happen? And it happens through forgiveness. And forgiveness only comes through repentance. I have to repent. And I will only repent if I think I've actually sinned, if I admit my own deception. 
And as I sat there and realized how much my sin, my, me walking in deception, and, and all the sin that was God was exposing, how much that hurt God. It hurt those around me, but ultimately it hurt God. And so, what God walked me through, and I'm going to ask you to kind of do the same. Plead with God. Plead with him to reveal your sin. As David says, search me. See if there's any wayward way within me. Am I marked as a kind person? If not, then I'm probably living pretty selfish. Am I known for being rude? Because what I'm really saying is I don't love you. Ask for a, ask for a soft heart. Because too often when God does reveal, us to our, reveal our sin to us, we're hard-hearted. At least I am, and I try and justify it and explain it away. To be able to call my sin, sin, admit it, repent of it, quit my pretending. And at the end of it, what I really had to come to grips with is we are willingly deceiving ourselves. Willingly deceiving ourselves. Repent. Ask for forgiveness and you will be forgiven. Now, in my family, uh, with my wife and I, she does most of the repenting to me and I have to do most of the forgiving. Right? That's how it goes. You guys, you know. So, just think of it this way. If my wife was to come to me and say, I'm sorry, and I say something like this, I forgive you, we well, just can't be close anymore. That's not forgiveness, right? And it's, it's not that that's how God doesn't do, or God does not do that either. In fact, there's a, there's a story of a man, a very wealthy man in Europe, who bought a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce advertised uh, as themselves as the car that would never break down. The car that will never break down. So he buys this Rolls Royce. Spends, you know, $12.5 million on a car and, and has this car. And he's driving it through Europe and he breaks down. So he calls up Rolls Royce and says, um, the car you sold me that you said would never break down has broken down. Rolls Royce puts a mechanic on a plane, flies it out to this man, gets, gets the car fixed and gets him back on his way. A couple of weeks go by, he never gets a bill. He's a wealthy man, can pay his bills, would like to get this behind him. So he calls up Rolls Royce and he says, hey, my car broke down and uh, you guys send a mechanic out to fix it, and I never got a bill. I just want to get it paid. And the response was, sir, we have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your vehicle. How beautiful is that? Of course God remembers. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not hold it against us. And so when my great deception is revealed, and I'm all my foolishness, my embarrassment, and I'm humbled, he forgives and nothing is held against me. There's a phrase in Christian circles, and Errol's going to lead you through communion here in a minute. Um, and this phrase is that sins have been atoned for and righteousness has been completed. My sins have been paid for, atoned for. Me getting overly dressed up and trying to present myself and deceiving myself and others has been paid for. So as we take communion, God in his kindness gave us communion to help us remember this. And as you sit there and break the bread, remember that God's body was literally broken because of my sin. And ask God, plead with him to reveal your sin. And don't just keep playing the game and brush it off. Admit it. Repent of it. And then the next part, and righteousness was completed. His blood now covers us. God looks at me and sees me and loves me the way Jesus is. He extends his favor to me. So let me pray for you and then... Uh
I think Errol's going to come up here.